Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Some facts. Get you some facts right here. Get you some facts. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. My name is Corey O'Flanagan, and I am your host. As always, this podcast is proudly a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Guys, if you haven't noticed, we have gone from a weekly show to a twice-monthly. You can still expect episodes coming out every other Wednesday, so make sure you hit subscribe, tell a friend, and leave us a friendly review. It really does go a long way, and it's just nice to see. What do you think of when you hear of ska music? Well, if you're like me, you've heard of it. You know it's in the realm of reggae, but you might not be 100% sure what the differences are in which bands are playing it. Well, if that is the case, then this episode of the podcast is for you. Today I am speaking with musician, podcaster, and now author of the new book, Ska Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History, Mark Wasserman. Mark was nice enough to send me a pre-order of his first book, and although I am still working through it, I can tell you it is a tremendously detailed account of Ska through the words of the band members that lived it. Mark and I delve into some of the details of his book here, which I think you should buy immediately. If you're unsure if you've ever heard Ska music, have a listen to this song by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, which I am sure you have heard, and then please sit back and enjoy Mark Wasserman. Have you ever had the odds to up so high? You need a strength, most don't possess. Or has it ever come down to do or die? You got to rise above the rest. So, Mark Wasserman, first of all, just thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You got it. Um, so I'm, I'm going to admit I'm about halfway through the book. I've been struggling. I got married a few weeks ago, so my schedule has been busy. Congratulations. I appreciate that. But I'm, um, I'm very, it, I love this book. If there's anything that I love reading, it's about music and musicians and the history of things like that. Um, but this book, which is your debut nonetheless, which is impressive on its own, um, it truly just helps someone with no previous knowledge of ska gain a lot of the knowledge that they might need of the music and the scene. Um, and I'm going to challenge you a little bit because before we jump really into some of the finer details, I'm wondering if you can give myself and my listeners a quick history of ska music and the multiple movements it has had, because you've been a part of it. Sure. Yeah. I'm ha- happy to do that. Um, ska music starts in Jamaica and it's an interesting combination of, um, local indigenous Jamaican music. So Mento and kind of the early forms of Calypso. But what happens that's interesting is that they're either able to pick up radio waves from New Orleans and the Florida Panhandle, or there are a lot of Jamaicans who are uh, merchant seamen who travel back and forth between Jamaica and the United States. And they pick up early rock and roll 
and soul and R&B records and bring them back to Jamaica. So what you have happening in like the late 50s is this um, huge number of amazing musicians that sort of decide to experiment by mixing the local Jamaican music with what they've heard from America. And yeah. that is ska. So ska is this, is this sort of, in, in, in its invention is, in, is sort of a mutation, which is what's so interesting about it throughout its history is it's continued to mutate and it mixes well with other forms of music. Um, but that's where it starts. And so Jamaica is sort of taken over by ska fever uh, right around the same time it gets its independence from England. So ska music is sort of associated with this idea of Jamaican independence. But these musicians, uh, there's a core group of them are really into experimentation. And what happens is ska is a little bit too fast and people want something a little slower to, to dance with their uh, girlfriend or, or wife to. So it gets slowed down into what we now know as rock steady, which is, which is sort of a, a much slower, much funkier, groovier version of ska. And then it takes even one more iteration where it becomes reggae and it gets really slowed down and you have sort of um, the bringing in of sort of a political uh, aspects of things that are going on in, in Jamaica. Uh, Jamaica is a complicated place culturally and socially. Yeah. Um, and so these musicians are, are speaking and singing about what they see, poverty and injustice and things like that. And so you have the rise of people like Bob Marley and the Whalers who start as ska musicians, but then follow all the way through as rock steady and then into reggae. Um, but, you know, that really is the history of it. What's interesting is that at the same time, lots of Jamaicans are immigrating to England and they're bringing this music with them to England and they're moving in next door to white British families and slowly ska and rock steady and reggae become the sort of Motown, if you will, of England. And you get a mixing of white and black kids who all listen to ska and reggae. And that is sort of the underpinning of what you get from two-tone. Okay. So and then where are we at timeline wise here? This is in the, in the mid to late seventies. Got it. Okay. So there's a huge immigration to England in the fifties and sixties. And the children of those immigrants are the people who start bands like the specials and uh, the selector and madness and things like that, that yeah. bring that element and influence of Jamaican music and culture into England. And then what happens is that music gets imported to the United States. So kids like me who were, you know, kids of the late seventies and early eighties, we hear the specials, we hear the selector, we hear madness and that, completely um we all go crazy with that sound and that is really where an american version of ska music is sort of born it's it's based initially in that two-tone sound but also kids like me we go back and discover the original ska rock steady and reggae and then you have punk rock going on at the same time so punk rock and metal and hip-hop all start to get mixed in in the into the 90s and so on and that really in a nutshell is sort of how we have this very varied mutated sound of American style music. Yeah, and it really is, isn't it? I mean, it just kind of, it's vast. And the more that I keep reading about the different bands and everything that you have in the book, which I did forget to say, but I'll, I'll give it right now. It's Ska Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History, which is such a cool way to have done it, to have gotten all these amazing interviews and just let these people tell their story and you just do the organizing. I thought that that was such a cool way to write this book. How did you kind of end up with that process did you think about doing it that way from the beginning or did that just kind of come to you as do you realized oh i'm gonna have access to these people it's a great question um i'm i'm a huge fan of musical oral histories i've read a lot of them okay and um i always feel that it's in general better to hear someone tell their story directly than it is to be filtered through someone else and so um 
Also the publisher that I'm working with, DeWolf, put out a great oral history about a punk rock club I spent a lot of time at called City Gardens. And so in conversations with them, the idea of the, first of all, they were, they warned me. They said, oral history is really, really hard to do. And I was like, yeah, 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 sure. They're like, no, it really is hard to do. But if you can do it right, it's invaluable. And I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do because I felt the bands that I'm focused on all existed before the internet. And so there's Mm -hmm. very little about them that's available. So I really felt like in order to do them justice and to honor their stories, it would be better if people heard those stories directly from them. And, and my job would be, as you pointed out, to organize or produce, to weave together the narrative of all these disparate voices, but telling one band's story. And that seemed to make sense. It was hard. It was a tremendous amount of work. Uh, it was like being a detective and tracking people down and convincing them to talk to me, you know, going through all the transcriptions of those conversations and then ultimately a hard work of pulling together what is the best way to tell this band's story, you know, to do them justice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I felt for a variety of reasons, the oral history format made a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. Well, we are the Song Facts podcast, so we're going to jump into talking about a few of the songs that you, you know, you go into some of this stuff in the book, which is great, but I want to try and go a little bit deeper if we can. And the first one I want to talk about um, is with the Hooters and Cindy Lauper, which shocked me. I'm thinking that it's going to be shocking some people here that there's this connection with with the ska music and then Cindy Lauper of all people. But um, time after time, girls just want to have fun. Her two songs that everybody knows. Um, I think a lot of people, like I said, are going to be surprised to hear that there's this history in ska. So I'm just, can you tell us how they correlate? Absolutely. So um, people of a certain age may remember the Hooters. I mean, most people probably remember them from as being like a mid eighties sort of, you know, interesting rock and roll band. Um, you know, out of Philadelphia, they played Live Aid. You know, their band that opened Live Aid, nobody really knew who they were, but they were huge yeah. in Philadelphia. That was surprising. They got their, that too. Yeah, kind of amazing. Um, but they started as a ska and reggae band in Philadelphia. Nobody seems to know that. I, I did because I, I grew up in uh, central New Jersey, which was midway between Philadelphia and New York. So I could get radio from both those cities. Mm. And the Hooters were played all the time on Philadelphia radio in the in the early 80s, and it was ska and reggae songs. So I just thought, wow, everybody must know that the Hooters are a ska and reggae band. Wrong. Um, Unless you lived in that area, you probably didn't even know who the Hooters were. But um, fascinating band. One of the main guys, his name is Rob Hyman, went to visit Jamaica as a kid. His family went on vacation there, and he became obsessed with Jamaica and Jamaican music and used to make trips down there on his own once he got older and really became a student of reggae. And... um, he and Eric Bazilian, his songwriting partner, were in a couple of other sort of progressive rock bands, but they went to see The Police one night and the next night went to see, the, and went to see Madness and sort of this, had this light bulb moment where they, where they were like, this is a sound that's amazing. And, and Rob was like, this is reggae. I want to do something like this. So they made an, a calculated decision to play ska and reggae. Okay. And if anybody who's listening is interested, you can go on YouTube and find early, early um, concerts the band performed did that are on there that are unbelievable, straight up ska and reggae band. Um, but what's sort of interesting is they had this arc where they were really popular as a ska and reggae band and then they, they sort of burned out. They needed to take a break. And it was at that point, they were contacted by a friend of theirs who had just signed Cindy Lauper to Columbia Records. And 
she needed people to help her write and record her first album. And she went to see them when they were a ska and reggae band and loved them because she was into this. Yeah. She liked what was going on. She loved two-tone. She loved reggae music. And so the, if you also can go online and find early demos that Cindy recorded up with them, there is a def definite ska and reggae sound in those early demos. Now, ultimately, did that end up being the way those songs came out? No. But um, the basis for a lot of what they did initially with, with her was, was rooted in having elements of, of like reggae guitar or reggae bass, um, the rhythm sounds, some of the yeah. drum sounds, um, very much of that era. Um, and uh, even if you listen to Girls Just Want to Have Fun, now that you know this, you'll hear the organ. is sort of playing a, a, like an upbeat sort of um, reggae bubble. Um, okay. You'll also notice if you listen to Time After Time, that's a reggae bass line that was played on a synthesizer, but that is a straight up reggae bass line. And that's what Cindy asked for. She asked uh, Rob and Eric Plate, I want a reggae vibe to this song. You know, I, I love that, that, you know, people know who Cindy Lauper are, but probably don't know this, you know, interest she had in ska and reggae and also the, this sort of influence that's, that I, there's still a hint of it there, even though obviously with a, a major label debut like that, some of it's going to get, you know, smoothed out, but it's still there. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, from what I've read so far, and like I said, I'm roughly about halfway through, it seems like there's two things that I keep noticing. One is that these all these bands that you're talking about, these guys are incredible musicians, whether they kind of, they fall in love with this music, but they can play other stuff if they want to. And a lot of times they do, because another thing that happens that I realize is that they seem to hit the ceiling playing the music that they love. And some of them choose to be like, I want to be, make it, I want to make it a little bit bigger and maybe change the vibe and what style, what, what new wave is something that was kind of coming around at the time. So they might switch over to this new wave sounds. So they can get a little bit more air, radio play, stuff like that. But they're just, they're able to go and be like, well, we're a ska band, but yeah, we can play on a Cindy Lauper record. And I think that that's just something to really note is that these people are incredibly talented, not just playing this one type of music. They're pretty well versed in a lot of different styles. Uh, yeah, speaking specifically about the Hooters, yeah, that's 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 absolutely 100% um, true about them. Um, and even even to this day, when I interviewed both of them for this book, they both still admit that they love music. I mean, Rob Hyman in particular says that his most um, treasured possession is like a, a, a Scottalites record that he bought when he was in 
Jamaica when he was like 14 or 15 years old. So, I yeah. mean, that's, he said that would be the first thing he would save if his house was ever on fire. So, I mean, that's <laughs> saying something for a guy who's sort of been a rock star, you know, yeah. a, a middle of the road rock star. Yeah. Okay. So next we've got a song by, and if I'm butchering this name, I really apologize because I don't think I've made it to this part of the book yet, but <laughs> Mephistopheles. Mephist- Mephist- you go, you just say it. <laughs> yeah. Mephistopheles okay. is a portmanteau of Mephistopheles. Okay. Um, and so really, really interesting band. I think we're going to talk about this song Doomsday, but yeah. I, I think what's really interesting about, about Mephistopheles is the way as I talked about a little earlier, when you asked me about sort of the history of, um, of ska, give you that sort of overview. Yeah. This is, this is where you start to see this really crazy sort of experimentation where they're a band who decide we're going to come up with a concept and the concept is satanic ska. Now, of course, remember bands like Motley Crue and, and um, even Alice Cooper, you know, sort of splurted yeah. or, you know, used devil imagery or Satan, even um, Ozzy Osbourne. Yep. These guys love that kind of music, but they also love ska. And they're like, no one's done anything like this before. We're going to do that. So they come up with this crazy name. And I remember them because I came out of the New York ska scene as well. They're from New York. And they just sort of came out of nowhere and bowled people over. They were this, <clears throat> excuse me, this interesting mix of um, like self-taught punk rockers with, with incredibly well-trained like jazz musicians who had gone to music school. Unreal. So you had this real interesting conflict of of you know punk rock meets you know um the, the right way to play music and so there that conflict sort of is in their music uh-huh. uh, so you'd have these sort of crazy punk and rock sounds mixed with ska mixed with these amazing horns these the horn player were all jazz musicians so you'd see an amazing show you never knew what to expect when you would see mephiscopheles and so they came in right at the right time when um, american audiences were open to ska but wanted to hear something a little bit different yeah so they uh, were really lucky. They were able to connect with this incredible rock producer named Bill Laswell. Some of your listeners may know he's probably more well-known from the 90s, but really established rock and roll, uh, hardcore um, you know, metal producer. And he mixes their first album, God Bless Satan, and um, gives it a sound like no one's ever heard before. Like it's, it's a really unusual record, still holds up to this day. Well, what they're able to do, they're just so inventive and creative, is that they self-finance a video for this song, Doomsday, shot at some club shows they did in New York, and they submit it to MTV for inclusion on, there used to be an alternative music show called 120 Minutes. You know, this was long again, before, before we all listened to our own Spotify channels and things, so everybody got yeah. their music news from MTV or the radio. And um, at the same time they submit this, the New York Times decides to write a huge story called uh, that, that noting that ska is the new sound of New York, which was sort of true. It had been for a while, but it took them a little while to catch up. But you had this sort of perfect storm of um, MTV saying they'd play this video on this New York Times story that quotes members of Mephistopheles. And it's, this is like around October of 95. There's just this huge explosion. And the fact that their videos, self-financed, self-made videos getting played on MTV is pretty extraordinary. So they're really one of the earliest bands that sort of um, mutate, as I talked about a little earlier, ska, and sort of just have an audience that would not normally be into ska, like people who are into metal, people who are into punk rock, yeah. start to go see Mephiscopheles. They go on tour with Boar. I don't know if you're familiar with Boar. Yeah, they were sure. art rock band. Um, they went on tour with the Buzzcocks. So they were really 
interested in expanding and reaching a much, much bigger audience. And for a time there in the 90s, um, people were really open to like this interesting mix of rock and ska. Really interesting to me that um, it was the mid 90s because I would have thought that that would be, I mean, that to me makes the story just that much better because at that time, it's like the heyday of MTV. It's before MTV kind of was, it was like took the next 10 years and transitioned into pretty much just reality TV. And um, it'd be so hard to get airplay at that time on MTV. And so I was like, oh, this must have been in the first like three years of the formation in the early 80s. But no, um, they no, did it at that um, time. Yeah, I, I did interview the president of MTV and I asked him about that. I said, how did, how did Mephistopheles sneak into airplay on MTV? And he's like, it happened occasionally. It happened. Um, the Boston's got decent amount of airplay on, on MTV. A band called Real Big Fish got decent amount of, mm. of airplay on MTV. And then Mephistopheles, you know, were, you know, occasionally would pop up there. Um, but it, it does sort of speak to all the, you know, in my book, I really looked at bands from the 80s who were really, really the pioneers and did a lot of the hard work of building an audience that these other bands were sort of able to capitalize on, you know, 10 years later. Yeah, like no doubt Sublime are some of the bigger names of them. And I think when you think of, think like when I think of Real Big Fish or I think of the Boss Tones, I think of a little bit more poppy radio friendly sound than what some of these other ones would have had previously. So it just kind of is like, polishing through the years until it becomes like they just kind of kept morphing it into something that's like oh now this is radio friendly is the um i need to i'll, I'll play a clip of it on here but is doomsday in that realm is i can't imagine that it's that poppy and radio no. friendly Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, it's it's uh, hard to say what the song's about, other than it sort of is part of this dark theatrical uh, approach that Mephistopheles took. And and you know whether it's um, tongue in cheek or not is up to you, the listener, yeah, yeah. to decide. But I, I know them, and so a lot of it was based on humor. It was how far can we push the envelope uh, within the realm of ska with yeah. the devil or dark, dark imagery or, you know, things about evil and so on. And so to me, that's what just makes them so fascinating. Stay tuned for more Song Facts podcast right after this. Ever wonder how my voice is bouncing off your eardrums so clean and crispy? No? Well, let me tell you anyway. The Lyra microphone by AKG brings their legendary acoustic engineering to a versatile USB mic that delivers the highest quality audio in its class. USB connection. This is good for me because of the simplicity and the ability to just plug and play without an interface. You may have gathered from various episodes that I am doing this show on the road, so being that I record most interviews in a different location than the last, it is good for me to know that I have a high quality, easy to transport and use USB mic like the Lyra to make sure my sound is clean. Whether you're like me and recording a podcast, a musician recording vocals or an instrument, or if you need to do a voiceover for a YouTube channel, 
Lyra's innovative AKG Adaptive Capsule Array adapts to your performance to record pristine audio. It has four versatile capture modes. What's a capture mode, you ask? That is how the mic picks up your voice. Just trust me, with these four options, it's really all you're going to need. With AKG Lyra, you'll be up and running in no time, no matter your experience level. There's no assembly, no need for separate audio interface, no fiddling with software settings. It just works right out of the box. And Lyra is something that is compatible with Windows, Mac, iOS, and Android devices, and all major recording softwares. So. If you're looking for a mic that offers ease of use along with a high quality sound, check out the AKG Lyra and look no further. Well, we're going to go back now and talk about a couple of the bands that paved the way for that. And um, so the Untouchables, this chapter, I just loved. And I don't know if it's necessarily, I seem to have this fascination with scenes surrounding Los Angeles, whether it's the Doors playing the whiskey in the late '60s, um, all the way up through Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses making their rise, even um, the Chili Peppers and how they kind of came out of there with a different sound, and all these different scenes that were going on. And I did not know about this crazy ska, and then what kind of combined into the mod scene, um, and so. I'm wondering to start out, can you tell me about how the ska and mod scenes aligned at this time and what, what, what were the differences and what were the things that were crossed over? Sure. Um, uh, so LA is, is in some ways an unlikely place for, for a mod scene and by mod for people who are listening, I'm referring to like uh, the who kids who yeah. follow the who in the sixties in England were kind of called mods based on the way they dressed and their culture, you know, of, of scooters and using um, amphetamines, you know, to go all night, to go out and party all night. Yeah. Um, and if you've ever seen the, the movie Quadrophenia, you'll yep. know what, what I'm talking about. That movie is about a, a, a big gang of kids who are mods, who love um, Northern Soul and Power Pop and things like that from the, from the 60s. And their whole life is rooted around going out partying, riding their scooters and so on. And so, I just I just want to make a note real quick to anyone listening. What we're going to talk about here is roughly in it's in L.A., but it's roughly at about the same time that you have Motley Crue really getting their start. It's 81, 82 ish. And like so you've got Theater of Pain coming out at the same time as this. So you've got these crazy scenes that really don't have anything to do with each other, but they're both big and happening in L.A. Exactly. And actually, I'll just take a quick sidebar and say that. Um, Oftentimes there was a crossover between bands like Motley Crue and the Untouchables, or there was another ska band that predated them called the Box Boys. Uh-huh. The Box Boys actually played shows with Motley Crue because they okay. were the only ska band in LA. And to its credit, booking people in LA were not hung up on, well, this can only be a hard rock bill. It would okay. actually put a ska band and a heavy metal band together. Yeah, so you sometimes have these sort of neck snapping shows where you'd be like, what, what did yeah, I yeah. do? <laughs> and in um, full defense of ska music, uh, it's a great way to open up a show. It just brings the energy up. Right. Um, but so what happens is that Quadrophenia, uh, for some of your younger listeners, I highly recommend you see it if you've never seen it, but it becomes like this thing in the U S in the late seventies. It's like a midnight movie thing. 
So people would go see Quadrophenia at a midnight movie. Um, and it has a real effect on people in LA. And you suddenly start to see kids dressing like and riding scooters like people from the movie Quadrophenia. It really grabs a hold of people. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, you have this guy named Howard Parr, uh, an Englishman, comes over to L.A. ostensibly for a vacation and stays and never leaves. And while he's here and he's, he's into punk, he's into ska, he's into reggae, he um, decides he wants to open a club that only plays ska music. And he meets this guy who owns this space in um, Silver Lake, which at the time was sort of a rough and ready neighborhood. Now it's probably one of the most desirable places to live in L.A., um, and he opens this hole in the wall club called the On Club, O-N-K-L-U-B, and decides he's only going to book ska and soul and reggae music. And one of the first bands he books is the Untouchables. And now this is happening at the same time as Quadrophenia sort of, you know, causing all this, this mod and scooter riding craze. And so you have this sort of uh, perfect storm of kids into mod and then the, the Untouchables who look like a mod and ska band. They sort of mix their you know their influences of ska and the who so they're this interesting rock ska sound yeah. and they're a very diverse band they're a mix of black and white kids and this is just sort of unprecedented for la which like most cities in the in the u.s in the late 70s pretty segregated so it was pretty um pretty notable that you'd have a band with you know five black guys and two white guys um and this sort of seems to bring together a whole scene around that um, that starts at the On Club and then just starts to spread out to other clubs in 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 LA. You you noted the doors before. The Untouchables tied the doors for playing the Roxy the most times. Oh wow! Just sort okay. of mind blowing. But that's how big their following was that they could sell out the Roxy. They would often play the Roxy two or three times a month and sell it out. Wow. So um, there was this real um, youth culture around the Untouchables, and that sort of spread slowly out of LA into Orange County. And you had, you would see people like Gwen Stefani and her brother, Eric Stefani from No, no Doubt would be at Untouchable shows. Um, members of Fishbone were at Untouchable shows. Yeah. And so the influence of the Untouchables, while they might not be well known to many of your listeners, is pretty extraordinary socially, politically, but also musically that, that um, they influence all of these other future musicians to sort of start ska inspired ska mod inspired bands you know no doubt doesn't end up being that or neither does fishbone but that's where they also get their original interest in sound from yeah okay really good job I, I, that's one thing that i was just like i wonder exactly how those tied together but it can just come down to something as simple as a a, a film like that there's a, the, the other one that you mentioned that I, I would say that people need to see is if they haven't is the harder they come oh absolutely um, because that one kind of sprouts up throughout the book as well. And that though, between those two films, that and Quadrophilia, you've just got yourself a really good basis for like, okay, these things happened in the 70s and kind of led to what was going on here in the early 80s through the 90s to kind of set the scene. Exactly. I mean, again, pre-internet movies were just such an important part of the culture and particularly youth culture. I remember trying to get into see Quadrophilia. I was too young and I tried to, you know, bluster my way in and I got blocked by the usher. They're like, you, you know, way are you getting into this movie? So, I mean, yeah, when I was in high school, that was like, everybody's like, have you seen Quadrophenia? Have you seen Quadrophenia? So um, yeah, it was, it was really important at that point to be able to experience that, you know, those sorts of things. You no internet meant, you know, you had to actually make an effort to, to go out and learn about stuff. And, and so that's why I think part of that, what draws me to that period of time in the eighties was this idea that as, as a kid, 
you had to do some work. You had to go to a record store. You actually had to listen carefully to the radio to what you liked and then go to a record store and ask somebody, where can I find this? Or can you help me find this? Um, and read liner notes in order to educate yourself. Uh, if it's not instantly gratifying, I'm not into it, Mark. I'm just telling you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, that's a really good point. And I think you get like a deeper appreciation because of the instant gratification that we have these days. You kind of just go read a Wikipedia article, brush up on it, got a little bit of knowledge, but it probably is in and out. Whereas this kind of is something that would stick more. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's why you find a lot of Gen Xers like me who have stayed very true to whatever music it was that you grew up with, whether it was ska, whether it was heavy metal, whether it was punk. I think it's, it's for that, you know, you get imprinted at that age because you did the hard work of learning as much as you could about whatever passionate feeling you had about that, that particular genre of music. Definitely. Yeah, I think so. And there's, that's something that's kind of becoming lost, unfortunately, is that, that like more deep rooted passion. Um, so these guys, the Untouchables, wrote a song "I Spy for the FBI," which I'd heard of before, um, but was ended up being this pretty unique song for the time. Um, so I just wondered if you could tell us a bit of the story behind that one. Sure. It's, um, it's a, uh, so in, in England, we had Motown here. In yeah. England, they have their version of that, which is called Northern Soul. So the, for whatever reason, geographically, the northern part of England really loves American soul music. And um, oftentimes what would happen is <clears throat> black musicians from the U.S. who were having trouble breaking here would relocate to England and suddenly have... Um, a career they would yeah. record and have you know hits in england so you had this sort of underground soul scene and one of the songs was really popular in england was called um i spy for the fbi uh, huge in england probably not as well known here a guy named J jamo thomas uh, wrote that song um so when the untouchables uh broke out of la they were signed to stiff records which uh was a very famous sort of punk rock label in England in the in the 70s and 80s. They had uh, a number of important bands, Ian Dury and the Blockheads, and then a band called Madness were on okay. Stiff Records, and they helped make Stiff Records really popular. When Madness left, the label felt like they had to find a replacement, and there were the Untouchables. So they were signed, which is kind of incredible, this American band from LA gets signed to this label in England, <laughs> yeah. and Diff Records brings them over to England to make them stars, thinking that they're going to replace Madness in terms of record sales and airplay. Um, and so they record this album, Wild Child, and they deliver it, and the label doesn't feel like it's got the hit that it needs. So they say, we'd like you to cover this song, I Spy for the FBI, and we, we want to have Jerry Dammers of the specials produce it. So what's kind of cool is that they're this full circle of the Untouchables being inspired by the specials, yeah, And then going over to England to record, and then they get hooked up with Jerry Dammers, who produces this song, um, with the hope that it'll be a big hit. Unfortunately, it wasn't. But what I, what I love about that story, first of all, is that it's an American 
ska band goes to England and get asked to record an American soul <laughs> song of a guy who went to England to be to be more successful. And then it's all produced by this, you know, everyone who's into two-tone ska, you know, really admired Jerry Dammers. So the fact that they got to work with Jerry, da first American band to work with Jerry Dammers is, is sort of a pretty big deal. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, that's so good. That, that This is why we're here. I love these kinds of little stories. Okay, so the last band that we're going to talk about is the Uptones. This was another chapter that I flew through. Absolutely loved it. Endless fascination with this. And I think a big part of, about it was because these guys were just so young starting out. Yeah. Uh, what we were talking on before was a little bit about how these musicians are so good. And these guys were just this good at like 15 to 18 years old. And a lot like the band kind of hit its heyday before any of them were out of high school for the most part, it seems like. And um, wh why is their song, Get Out of My Way, an important song for people to know about? Don't wanna hurt you or cause any trouble But get out of my way, get out of my way I'm trying to dance here, I'm moving the double So get out of my way, get out of my way I don't want your guns And I don't want your rat race Sure, I'll just, I'll just give a little bit of context to, to your introduction um, yeah. Yes, they all met um, at Berkeley High School And they were all in this various age ranges of like freshmen to seniors So like 14 to 17 or 18 um, <clears throat> Berkeley Public Schools had made an investment in music education very early on. And so if you wanted to learn an instrument in Berkeley, there was no uh, impediment to that. So if you couldn't have, didn't matter if you couldn't afford your instrument, they would provide an instrument. And for a while, Berkeley was sort of like the theater system for American jazz musicians, just because yeah. of the fact that they spent so much time and energy in educating all these really talented people. So what you have in the uptones is sort of this mix again of people into punk rock, but also incredibly well-trained uh, musicians who are all taken with what they're hearing, which is two-tone, the specials, selector, madness. Um, they go see the English beat and they decide we're gonna, we wanna be a ska band. And um, they are allowed to play their first show the last day of school, which is pretty incredible. So you have like 4,000 kids streaming out of Berkeley High on the last day of school in 1982. And these kids are playing. So they had an immediately built-in audience yeah. um, and they catapulted from that and became incredibly popular. And the, the first song they ever wrote and recorded, the song Get Out of My Way, ends up getting played on the radio in Berkeley and, and San Francisco and then the whole Bay Area when these kids are still in high school. Can you imagine like your song being on the same time that like top 40 songs yeah. are being played? Um, and so they become this phenomenon Incredible. In, in the Bay Area. And, you know, talk about sort of influencing others. I mean, listening to this band are people who end up starting Operation Ivy and Rancid and Green Day. So unfortunately, as you noted, unfortunately, the, the untouchable sort of, I'm sorry, the uptones burned out. I mean, it's hard to be a, a rock star when you're in high school. Yeah. Sort of keep that going. <laughs> Um, Where do we go from here? We had right. one of the things that you touch on, or more so they touch on, because they're telling their own story. Is we we did so well, and unless we were going to expand into, uh, I guess, the whole West Coast or even just nationally, like where else could we go? And it just didn't seem like that music was going to get that kind of momentum behind it. Very true, and also, I mean, some of them were like 
15 or 16 years old and yeah. their parents were like, you're not going on tour, I'm sorry, it's not gonna happen. Um, so they were sort of a, a West Coast phenomena. But what I think is, is testament to them and the influence they had is that um, Tim Armstrong of Rancid is a huge fan. Yeah. Grows up going to see them all the time and ends up covering Get Out of My Way on either the first or second Rancid album. I can't remember which one it was. Um, and then ultimately asks a couple members of the band to write uh, some songs with him. So there are a couple of, of songs that he wrote with members of the Uptones. Um, and, in, and then Rancid has a huge hit with a song called Time Bomb. breakout hit in the mid 90s and features the original keyboard player from the uptones who gets to play that really um, memorable uh, organ part that's sort of like the middle eight of that song mm -hmm. so i just love again that there's this um full circle of uh, one band influencing another and then bringing the members of that influential band into the fold for a little while it seems to be one of the the main things that I've gotten so far and that's why I'm excited to continue on and finish the book is because of these stories and the way that they intertwine and kind of come back and play off of one another. That's, that's something that you've done. That's one of the things that I imagine was tough, but the gratification of pulling it off and having it happen within the book has just got to be a really nice feeling to put in the time. I think it was three and a half years you worked on this project, right? That's right. Um, and, and yes, that is the, the, the biggest sense of satisfaction I have is that, um, uh, I do want, I know that everyone knows about American ska from the 90s. What I really want is to make sure that people are educated about the fact that it didn't start in the 90s. Not like, you know, uh, Operation Ivy and, and Rancid and Real Big Fish came out of nowhere. They didn't. They were influenced by all the bands that I write about in the book and the musicians who put their heart and soul and passion into what they were doing when very few people knew what ska music was here. So thank you. Yeah, I'm glad that's that was the ultimate goal. Yeah, uh, I think you pulled it off. So the book is Skaboom. It's an American ska and reggae oral history. Mark Wasserman, I have one more question, and that's kind of projecting a little bit more because we've spent this whole time looking backwards. And I just want to thank you for sharing this knowledge. You just you're a you're a huge database for this type of music, and that I just love it. Um, but what do you think the future holds for ska music? Well, it's interesting. It, it seems to be having uh, what some people will call a resurgence right now. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's because uh, a couple of things have happened. First, I'll, I'll say ska music has never gone away. Um, it's always been there from the 80s on. So just because you don't read about it in the mainstream media, you know, in the Washington Post or the New York Times or, or hear about it on, on, hear it on the radio doesn't mean it's not there. Um, uh, what's happened is that a couple of bands who um, are again mutating and mixing and, and bringing in other uh, aspects of you know what's going on in society right now have started to get some attention, which I think is great, which means that if there's interest again, then we have an opportunity to, to educate people, not only about the bands that are happening right now, but also about the history. So uh, you know, I, I like 
to support the argument that ska is never, not going anywhere. It will continue to mutate. Um, if kids are still into it, then there's infinite variations that, of things you can do with ska music. You can mix it with just about any kind of music and create something new. You won't be the first person to have done that, but if you can figure out a way to make it sound good, then I guarantee you that there will be an audience there for it. I think that's a really good point too, because it is in at its basis, fun, upbeat, feel good, get people up and dancing type of music. So if you're just sitting there struggling with you're playing live gigs or something like that, and you just can't get people out of their feet, maybe throw in a couple of ska songs, talk to your drummer, see if they can pull off that backbeat <laughs> and, uh, and try and make it happen. That's why none of my bands could, I couldn't pull off the backbeat. <laughs> that's, that's always been a challenge for, for some folks. It's, you know, it's just uh, inverted. The rhythm is a little bit inverted, but once, once you can get it, if you can do it well, it, it, it really works with anything. Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. I'm enjoying it so much. And I hope that uh, we can do a little bit to try and get this into some other people and um, just really appreciate it and hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. Big old thank you to Mark for coming on and educating us so profoundly. I love reading this book, so please go buy it. We will link to it in the show notes. And as always, guys, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. We'll see you again in a couple weeks. Thank you. Get your song back. Get your song back right here. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.